Look today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may have heard this story this week. I think it's a shocking story. Statistics Canada is going to be grabbing the private financial transa- uh, transaction information of 500,000 Canadians to create what it's calling a, quote, new institutional personal information bank, which is a fancy way of saying they're going to be taking information on your bill payments, your cash withdrawals, your credit card payments, your electronic money transfers, your account balances, basically everything about your finances, if you're one of the 500,000 Canadians who are chosen, everything about your finances are now going to be in the purview of the government to look at, to study, to hold, whatever else. Well, what is really shocking about this is that this is being done without, again, if you're one of the clients of one of these banks, without your knowledge. Banks aren't asking you if they can do this. And even if you go to the banks, it says, and ask them, hey, am I in this? Can I prevent it? No, they won't tell you and you can't stop it. This is, this is now an information grab, it seems, and the, and the federal government fully supports this. Here's a quote from the prime minister the other day when he was questioned about this in the House of Commons. He said, high quality and timely data are critical to ensuring that government programs remain relevant and effective for Canadians. So it is, according to the government, according to StatsCan, this is for your good. This is good for you. I'm not so sure about that. Let me bring in Alan Mendelson. He is an internet lawyer. We've had him on this show many times when stuff like this comes up about internet law and internet issues. We love having you on. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Scott, my pleasure as always. Uh, Is this good for us? We're told it's good for us. Is this good for us? (laughs) Well, you know, I think anytime uh, a governmental organization collects personal data on Canadians, it is not good for us. Uh, You know, I, I think the goal in the end is a good idea you know i i I certainly agree with the prime minister's statements that it is important that stats can have this information now when i say it's important that stats can has this information my opinion is that well stats can can have this information but it should be anonymous as soon as they collect it and that's the problem here is that stats can seems to be saying well we're going to collect all the information we're going to compile it we're going to do things with it and then we'll make it anonymous later. Well, that's the problem. It should be anonymous from the beginning, and in which case I think Canadians would have less to worry about. Well, yeah, because where it gets concerning to me along this whole way is, okay, if I, um, if I, give, if I go to buy a Tim Hortons and I use my debit card, they're going to know about that, presumably, if I'm one of those 500,000. That's not the end of the world. If I buy gas, you know, they'll know about that, but that's not the end of the world. But if I donate to a cause, let's say, or some charity or whatever else, but something that flies in the face of the official government position, if I happen to disagree with the government and do something financially that goes against the government's position, do I risk being on some sort of list somewhere down the road? Because they will know about that. Well, it's certainly possible. Uh, I, you know, I'd li- I do have maybe some more confidence in the government that they wouldn't do something like that. Uh, you know, you have the right to spend your money as you require. Um, and if it's going, you know, if it's, you're donating to some cause that does, is contrary to uh, the government's position, well, you know, I, I don't think that's problematic. But what if you were using your uh, debit card in some potentially semi, let's call it semi-legal activity? Could that information be turned over to 
you know, police authorities. I, I think that's concerning as well. So, you know, that's, that's, there's a lot of issues that, that are connected to this, I think. Well, we already have people who are putting their debit or credit cards or whatever online to buy cannabis. Now, it is legal now. I get that. It's, I understand that it's now legal. But now you have this as well. And let's say I go to apply for a job at the federal or, or at, a, at a government job. Can they look and go, hmm? I'm not sure between the fact that they're using cannabis or something else, as you say, anything that sort of falls into that gray area of, huh, th- this is, this is the stuff. Again, if it's totally legal, if it's totally benign, I still don't like the idea, but mm, I guess no harm, no foul. I, I, I guess we're just being asked to fully wholeheartedly trust the government that is a faceless entity. <laughs> Right, exactly. And, and, you know, I I don't think anyone, you know, even if you're a liberal, would be trusting the government 100 percent, you know, to do anything that they want with your information. So, you know, I I think, yes, that is an issue. And financial data traditionally in the legal sphere and in the privacy sphere is treated, and it specifically says this in Canadian privacy laws, as the most sensitive, along with your health data, financial data is considered the most sensitive data there is. So again, I, I return to my earlier point. I mean, if StatsCan needs to, you know, compile data as to Canadian spending habits, I agree that they should have the right to do that, but they shouldn't have the right to collect that information if it's not anonymous. Among other things, If I'm a client of one of these banks that is going to be here, when I decided to get a debit card to open an account to take a Visa or a MasterCard or whatever with these banks, was I not expecting, though, that the banks would absolutely fight to protect my privacy? Because it doesn't sound like that's what the banks are doing. They sound like they're acquiescing to this rather than putting up a fight. Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, uh, the Bank Act, the law, the federal law that governs banking in this country has specific, it is one of the few laws besides the general privacy laws that has specific regulations and laws with respect to personal information. Um, again, as I was mentioning before the break, uh, financial information is considered so serious and so sensitive that the, the legislator decided, well, you know, we should have protections for financial information in the law. So it's even in the law. Now, from what I understand and, um, you know, my knowledge of the law with respect to Statistics Canada is, you know, is limited. But from what I understand, the law says that the Statistics Canada has the right to get data from just about anybody it wants. um, And the individual bodies have no right to fight it. So I, I think that's what's going on here is that uh, the law with respect to StatsCan um, is sort of trumping every other privacy law that we have in this country. Is that okay with you? Well, obviously not. <laughs> because, because you know, I, again, I, I, I would like my bank to at least look like they're fighting to protect my privacy on these things. No, no, you know, I, I certainly agree with you. Um, banks, however, are gen- are some of the most highly regulated uh, organizations we have in this country. So a bank is sort of subservient to the laws that govern it and its data. It's not like, you know, uh, the corner grocery store down the street that doesn't really have to worry about getting approvals for its next large financial operation or worrying about a regulator that can go out of its way to protect the little guy. 
the bank is sort of it's kind of if it's required by law to do something is going to do it without necessarily worrying about its customers. The thing about this too, and there's a lot of things that I'm saying that about, but I mean, there's a lot of parts of this that that do bother me and trouble me. One of them is they weren't going to tell us this. This was uncovered by some media reports. This was otherwise going to be something we never were going to know about. This wasn't going to be announced. Uh, Clearly, I would think they probably guessed that we would be ticked off if they had just come out in the House of Commons and said, by the way, half a million of you are about to lose your privacy on this. Um, it, it does make me also wonder if this is the case, do we worry that other things that we're supposed to have privacy on is being gathered as well? Well, I suppose we can worry about just about anything. There's <laughs> no question, you know. As I, but as why I couldn't always, our medical as, stuff? As I, you know, as I always say, anytime your, inf- your information is collected by somebody, it ends up sitting on a server, a computer, a hard drive, some sort of recording mechanism somewhere out there. And as soon as it's just sitting there on some recording mechanism, there's going to be someone else, some other government body or whoever, who is going to want to get it. So there's no question. It's, it's always concerning um, but at the same time, it's uh, you know it's the price we pay for a modern society. But the Canadian government has, in recent years, had to pay out settlements for data breaches, has it not? There have Absolutely. been so. No so we'd love again, we'd love to be trusting. I think of the of the federal government, the provincial, whatever government that they're going to do well, and maybe their intentions would be perfect with this. But there have been examples where information has been become free, gotten loose. It's in the wind. I'm with you. If if you could have assured me as it was leaving the banks that my name and your name and everyone's name was off this and it's just person X and here's their stuff so we can study it, okay, but that doesn't sound like what's happening. Right, exactly. And I, I think that's a real problematic situation here. You know, I, I think we should mention um, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, uh, the Privacy Commissioner, Daniel Therrien, he's, they are looking into this now. But again, as you know, as you mentioned earlier, would they even be looking into this had the media reports not come out? So that is concerning as well. Yeah, and the Prime Minister has said, he was in the House of Commons, he says this is just fear-mongering by the Conservatives. I, I, I do think, though, that you and I probably could both agree that if this had happened five years ago under Stephen Harper, the Liberals would have been screaming from the mountaintops that this is an invasion of our privacy. I mean, it doesn't matter what party it is. This is it, this is a concerning thing. This is going to get people's eyebrows cocked. Uh, as a, as a, a lawyer, I try not to play politics, but uh, you may have a point. I, I mean, either way, it doesn't matter what yeah. party was going to do this. The other side was going to be worried about it. Absolutely, and and for good reason. I, you know, I, I, you and I have done enough interviews over the last couple of years, Scott, to realize that there are so many of these issues that keep popping up that are going to concern Canadians. And for good reason. And they will only continue to do so. So whatever government in power should be, let's call it, less tone deaf to the issues that it raises. Alan Mendelson, uh, internet lawyer, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure as always, Scott. Have a great night. It's. Uh, I, I hope Alan is right. I, I mean, I do. I hope that he is. he seems more comfortable to some degree with this than I am. I just hate the idea. Because we don't know... The government is a nondescript, it's a big body, and there's lots of people to the government, and I am not necessarily trusting enough to say that there's not somebody or some people 
who, now that this information is in their hands, will always do the right thing with it. Not the banks would necessarily either, but at least with banks, that's a business. I don't know. I find this very, I find it troubling that our information that is supposed to be private once again isn't. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many people, I think, but there are certainly those in the financial world who are pointing out that Canada is heading towards a unique and possibly unsettling change in the next number of years. And it starts from the fact that we are living longer, which generally is a good thing. We're not going to dump on living longer. It's better than the alternative, but we are living longer. We have more people who are getting up there in years and up there in years means A, they're retired and B, they're going to cost the system more. That's just the reality. It's not a personal slight against any of you who are older. It's just how it works. And in a few years from now, we are going to have the largest cohort of elderly people ever and of retired people. Now that is more strain on the system, more strain on healthcare costs, more strain on retirement benefits, more strain. There's lots more money that is required to keep the system going when that happens more than we've ever, ever had in our history before. And, and we also know that the changing face of employment at the other end, younger people coming into the system who don't stay at the same job for a long time, who don't necessarily make the same money, who don't have the same benefits, they are fewer. And so it all leads to this interesting and, as I say, sometimes troubling, sometimes unsettling picture of how are we going to keep paying the bills? Well, there is a group out there that has a very, very interesting idea. And their idea is we must ratchet up. We must rapidly accelerate our immigration in this country because by the year 2100, so less than 180 years from now, roughly, we need to have a country of 100 million people in Canada, which means more workers, more taxes, more money flowing into the system. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business uh, to chat about this, Marvin, because um, thanks for joining me, by the way. Pleasure. Um, 100 million people in Canada. I, there are so many things that are interesting about this concept. There's also a lot of things about this that I don't really know if it's actually possible, but would the economics work in that? If we simply add more and more and more people to our country, especially presuming they're younger people and working age people, many of them, does that, does the math work? Is that, would that work to be able to pay off then the giant cohort in the gray area? Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm going to answer your question, but if you don't mind, I'm going to get there just a little more slowly. I want to tell you what the baseline is today in Canada. Now, uh, today in Canada, we are not producing enough children to support our population. The average couple has to have 2.1 children to do that, and we're not. Our, our rate of having children is below that. So how we keep our population more or less where it is, growing slightly, is through a, a fairly aggressive immigration policy. Roughly 300,000 people a year come into this country from outside to help bolster things. Now, if I take our current rate of growth, and our current policies, and extrapolate them out to the year 2100, this country, which is today around 35 million people, 36 million people, would be, drumroll please, almost 50 million people. So that's, if we just keep doing what we're doing at the rate we're doing it, we'll naturally get to 50 million in 80 years. So this group, I believe they're called the Century Initiative, Yes, uh, who've thought this all through carefully. They're suggesting we need to grow faster. We need to get to 100 million people. 
Uh, they're not, for instance, thinking that we're going to naturally have more children all on our own, so they actually advocate an even stronger immigration policy, probably on the order of 450,000 people a year, maybe even getting close to a half a million people a year. That's how we're going to get there. Now, my question is, yes, I think if you change the rate we grow, we can get to 100 million. But now why? Why are we doing this again? And that's where this thing starts to fall apart a bit in my mind. Uh, they're talking about this inverted pyramid we have right now where we have this baby boom generation that's working its way through. But, Scott, to help you and your listeners understand this, the baby boom extends from the period of 1946 to 1964. Really easy to remember. You just reverse them back and forth. That means the oldest baby boomers turn 72 this year. The youngest are more on the order of 54 this year. And yes, we're going to have you know this group work their way through, and we're going to need them, but that's all going to be pretty much done in roughly uh, 25, 30 years. Uh, I just don't see then, once we get through that, and we get back to a more normal population curve without that baby boom bulge in the middle of it all, why we really need to go through all of this. Well, I think the answer that they would give reading their site and reading some stuff about them is they will say because of the fact that we're all living longer, that we will, that that group will be lasting longer than previous generations. And therefore, so while your numbers are all correct, let's add another 15 years or maybe more than that to where we are traditionally. Yeah, the problem with that is the, the advances in medicine aren't growing as that much. You're absolutely correct today. When I talk to the students I teach at McMaster University, they should be able to live into their early 80s. When I remember when I was a student years ago, it was sort of mid-70s. So we have moved the, the line at which we're going to have a face our mortality, but we haven't moved it that much. In other words, to, to suddenly suggest we need 100 million people because the baby boomers are going to refuse to die, and trust me, if they could, they would <laughs> refuse to die. They don't want that, but it's just, it, I just don't see it happening. Now, what concerns me also with this group is that they seem to be driven on this idea that uh, 100 million is also a critical number in economic history, meaning that economies that have become more dominant uh, got to that 100 million population. And the minute you get there, boy, you sort of enter the big league. So if we can just get to 100 million, oh, stand back, Canada's really going to own the world. I'm just, again, not sure that, that that's really the policy we want to follow there's a feeling today when there's 7.5 billion people on this planet that, that we don't need to keep growing at the rate we've been growing. In fact, the, the really the sustainable population is less than 7.5 billion people. So countries really should find a way to not have this same kind of big growth, if you will. We should be trying to level off. Now, if we shift the population a little bit from one country to another, that's fine. But the overall total shouldn't change. And again, I think this is a question for them. You know, are you really then suggesting that, that we want to grow the population, or is this a shift on the world level? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. An idea that's been thrown out by a think tank to resolve the problems in Canada of the aging population that is living longer and being more of a draw on the resources that we have without as many people paying into the system, that we need to pump up the size of this country dramatically. And by the year 2100, we should be at 100 million people. And uh, Marvin, again, that the number, I mean, for, for Canadians where we have lived in the shadow of a huge country, that sounds stunning, first of all, that number. But And by the way, for anyone who's listening, we're not even talking, we're not, this is not about 
whether we want to change the social dynamic or the the racial makeup. That's nothing to do with this. I mean, the immigration thing, that's a whole other discussion. This is simply about finances. The But it does raise the question, if we were going to follow the model that they are proposing to rapidly increase the amount of immigration, would it not force us to change who we are admitting into the country? And I don't mean from what countries, but rather than being Canada as a safe haven for people fleeing persecution or wars or whatever else, I would under, I would think then if we're doing this from a purely financial standpoint, we would have to be going back almost to the earlier days where we are picking and choosing the people who can bring us the best skills, not necessarily just to be escaping trouble. Right. So when you ask them about this, uh, they, they are very clear that in their numbers, in their projections, that Canada should still remain a safe haven and we should welcome those people seeking refuge from difficult situations in the world. But they don't see that number changing all that much. What they would like us to do is, as you suggest, scour the world for the best and the brightest, people who are either entrepreneurial in nature, who would like to start a business and can see an advantage of doing so in Canada, or these are just bright individuals, scientists, doctors, technical people who would like to apply technology to problems, and that we should be encouraging more of those people to come here. Now, again, I would point out my, my worry about this Century Institute is I'd never heard of them until you had shared this story with me tonight, so I did a little digging, and, and they seem like a perfectly nice group of people, but they seem to have something in common, and that is they get a certain amount of funding from financial institutions, banking institutions, and, and so the, you know, I'm not surprised they see the way out of any problem as having more people. I could say we could still get away with the smaller number of people if, for instance, we use technology more wisely. So they've, they've got to an end point how do I solve the problem of the baby boom and the drain from those people living longer? Yes, one way is to put more people at the bottom end of the pyramid and, and admit more people. I would say another way is to find technology solutions. Another way, by the way, is, is to get people to rethink even the idea of retirement. Uh, I know my father, when he was looking forward to 65, because once he turned 65, boy, he was just going to sit back and enjoy his twilight years. I know lots of people today, 65 and 70-some-odd, that just don't really want to get out of the road. They're saying, I'm enjoying it. might have a different definition of work. It might not be 40 hours. Maybe it's 20 hours. It isn't necessarily financially driven, but they say, I'm, I'm still too clever, too bright. Why am I going to withdraw myself from the workforce? So there are some other ways to tackle this, I think. They've specifically gone after the population. Well, the one other part about this that really strikes me as interesting, and it is a fascinating topic to have, whether it's realistic or not, uh, that is with so much more automation now, with so much more, um, what do you call it, uh, intelligence, artificial yep. intelligence and, and everything else, wouldn't we not, if we start ratcheting up the number of people coming into the country to, to for this end goal, would we not by definition simply end up with a lot more people who couldn't work, then therefore requiring social assistance, which would end up costing more rather than producing more? Yeah, so that becomes another question is, you know, what does the world of work look like in the year 2100? To use an example from 2018, uh, Stelco DeFasco produces much steel as they have ever produced, but they do it with a workforce that is considerably smaller than it was in the 1960s when it was such a dominant employer. Uh, today it's the hospitals, which are the dominant employer in Hamilton. But again, yet when we look forward, everyone thinks, well, there's going to be new technologies in medicine that are going to change the job outlooks. 
So, you know, if you buy into the Star Trek view of the world in 2100, you do have a lot of people who, who are just enjoying leisure. That This whole idea of a 40-hour work week is crazy, that we'll have a different way of doing this, and that wealth will become meaningless because we'll have other ways of generating food and other things that we need through synthetic means. So, again, it's hard when you start looking 80 years down the road. I tend to, if I'm doing futuristic things, look at 2040 or 2050. What do we need at that point? Because there's just too many variables at play in a high-technology society. It is, uh, it is certainly one that caught my eye and certainly one that made, uh, that made me, my jaw drop a little, the idea of Canada as a 100 million person country. I, frankly, beyond everything else, and we've got to run, unfortunately, beyond everything else, I'm not entirely sure where we put all these people because I'm not sure our cities could handle that much more and we can't shove them up in northern Ontario way, way up there because apparently very few people want to be there. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea, if nothing else. We'd have to else. rethink our cities. We'd have to go up rather than out so we have cities that are more vertically oriented and tall buildings. Again, we'd have subways in Hamilton. Just don't know if we're ready to have 20 cities in Canada with 5 million people in them. Probably won't find out. (laughs) Marvin Ryder, appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this as always. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday when Lisa was in on the other side of the glass, she was running the show, making sure things were working properly. We had a an edition of Lisa's story of the day. Well, we're going to do a special second version of story of the day today. Will is in today, so it'll be Will's story of the day. We've just got so many things going on in the world right now that it seems like we can't just do it once. So here's how it works. I'm going to give you three stories from around the planet, unusual things that have happened, Will is going to hear them and using whatever criteria he chooses, and it's entirely up to him. I don't care how he decides. He will tell us what is his story of the day. Will, are you ready for this? I am ready. All right. Story number one comes to us from Chicago. Well, it actually comes from Kansas City and from Chicago. There was a baggage handler working at the Kansas City airport who I guess either showed up for work slightly inebriated or... Once he got to work, found some hooch and got himself slightly loaded. But anyway, he's working away, loading planes in the bag. He's just smashed. Anyway, as he's loading the luggage in the cargo hold of one of his planes, he passes out. He falls asleep. And when he comes to, he's in Chicago, not in (laughs) Kansas City, which is brilliant, really. I mean, it's really brilliant to think that you could actually fall asleep in Kansas City on the job and you wake up and you're like, wait a second, huh? What? what? Where am I? There's story number one. Wow. Um, he is, um, uh, no charges were filed. He was sent back to Kansas City. American Airlines says it's grateful he wasn't injured. Yeah, you could get really... It doesn't say anything here, but I'm guessing probably that was his last day on the job. Yes, that is my biggest question. <laughs> Story number two comes to us from Kingsport, Tennessee. So we've gone from Kansas City to Chicago. Now we're going down to Tennessee. There's a restaurant there where guys were working in Morton, in, uh, what's the name of the restaurant? Cookout was the name of the restaurant. Cookout. And I guess the people are working there and all of a sudden there's a big crash above them, a gigantic noise, and someone partially falls through the ceiling. Now, this was a little bit unusual because it was a woman 
who was wearing no pants. Okay. No, no good reason why she was half naked on the roof of the building and came crashing through, but somehow just the bottom half of her came through the roof of the store, dangling down into the kitchen. Scott, is this a, like a Sherlock Holmes story? Are we going to have to... <laughs> but the, oh, wait, wait, wait. But you're missing the, the best part of this. Okay. Because this half-naked woman falls through. So the chefs, the cooks, I don't know if it's, I don't know if at this restaurant, if they're cooks or chefs, I don't know how high class this is. But anyway, suddenly there's this half-naked woman's lower half dangling down into their kitchen. Well, she scrambles, pulls herself back up. So they're like, well, that was unusual. It happened again. What? She fell through a second time in a different hole in the ceiling. At which point she was, well, she fell right through this time and crashed down onto the floor of the kitchen, at which point officers were called and dealt with her via arrest. How did, I have so many questions, Scott. (laughs) We all do. I don't know why she had no pants on. I don't know why she was on the roof. I don't know how she fell through twice. (laughs) I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. But now... We go to story number three, which also involves food. How much nudity? No nudity. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I can't say none. I will offer a warning, though. This story is so horrible that if you have a weak stomach, brace yourself. I won't say turn the channel. We'll see if you can handle it, but this is is a bad one. This is a test for you, folks. This is a test. So story number three for Will's story of the day comes from Bangkok at a vegetarian restaurant in Bangkok where diners, according to Asia One, which is a news service there, diners were eating something in their food that didn't taste right. And they became very upset because they discovered that, and again, this is a vegetarian restaurant, they discovered there were chunks of meat floating around in their food, in their Whatever it was. They're say, the story says floating around, so I'm assuming it's those bowls of Vietnamese or Thai soup yeah. things. May I hazard a guess? Did someone fall through the roof of this place? Almost. Police discovered a 61-year-old patron of the restaurant had gone missing and... Whoa. Yeah, you know the rest of the story. Holy... Whoa. This is like real-life fried green tomatoes. <laughs> the way they... The killer disposed of the body who worked in the restaurant was to serve him to the customers. Bad enough that you're serving it to the customers, you're serving it to vegetarians. Yeah, that is the big offense. (laughs) But think about it. If this had been a regular restaurant, he may never have been caught. The reason he got busted was because it was a vegetarian restaurant and they didn't want meat in their food. Was that not horrible? That is the most horrible thing I've ever heard. So which one is your story of the day today? Um. The drunk baggage handler who accidentally flew from Kansas City to Chicago when he passed out in the plane. The half-naked woman who twice fell through the roof of a restaurant into the kitchen. Or the vegetarian diners in Bangkok who inadvertently and not to their pleasure were dining on the remains of a former customer who was cooked up by the chef. Scott, I, I, my library is filled with Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie and everything involving all of, like, everything you have here tonight. Thank you for sharing these ones with me. Scott, I, I gotta go with the, what Bangkok? is it? Yeah, I gotta go with Bangkok. It's that worst. is, yeah, that is, the, that may be the worst story of the month or the year, but you can tell your friends about it tomorrow, though. Feel free. Share that one. That's, that's, that's one to remember. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good buddy Rick Zamperin, who just finished an entire day on the air, and so we decided to bring him back on because, really, with Rick Zamperin, there's never too much radio. I really have nothing else to do. To be honest. So, <laughs> well, I so saw. I'm happy to be here. I saw a Facebook post or a Twitter post or something from you today saying that your home renovations were done, and so <laughs> now I know that is actually true. <laughs> Hallelujah! Yes. Uh, before we get into some of the stuff I want to talk about, I do want to talk about something very sad and very serious and very tragic. Uh, someone that you and I both know. Um, people heard yesterday about this accident that was on Highway 6 up in Hagersville. Mm-hmm. Turns out that the one of the two people who was in there was a guy by the name of Don Edwards who has been involved for decades in football in this community. Rick, you knew Don, I knew Don. Uh, I mean, any... Traffic accident, any accident where someone passes away, regardless of who it is, is always going to be tragic. This one, though, is uh, this one's tough for the local football community. You know, it's really you think of Don, you think of his legacy. You know, so close to the game, but you know, always giving of his time, always willing to teach. You know, the next generation, or you know, someone had a question, he was right there. Um, you know, one of these salt of the earth individuals, and. You, you just never know. And, you know, I, I come home every night. I'm sure there's parents, you know, uh, uh, around the world, really, that maybe they take their kids for granted at times. Uh, I always ensure that, you know, I'm going to give them a hug, uh, you know, a goodnight kiss, uh, and just let them know that I'm here for them because you just never know. Life is short, and I don't really want to be somber or, or something. Well, I'm sure. That's the I'm kind sure of story, though. Yeah, but, you know, just, just don't take things for granted, I think, is, is one of the common denominators that I like to live my life by. And I'm sure Don did that because he was one of those guys that you could just count on. Whether you needed, to, you know, an answer to a football question or just, you know, some life advice, he was there. So, you know, very sad day. Absolutely. And it was his son who was also tragically yeah. killed with him. It's, it's, uh, it is really a, a terrible, terrible story. Again, not just because he's football. I mean, anyone in this situation, regardless of what line of work they're in or whatever, it would be the same thing. But, uh, yeah, I, for his family, um, not that our words make any difference right now, but uh, very sorry, and you have our great sympathies for that. Don was yeah. a really good guy. Let us move on to something um, <clears throat> that is uh, far less sad, although certainly uh, I thought uh, it was strange today. You wrote a great piece uh, on your blog that people could find it on Twitter, people could find it on the website. The Hamilton Ticats put out their awards every year well, you explain how the awards things work. Every team puts forward their nominees, right, for different yeah. awards? Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, the, the, every team in the CFL has, you know, a group of reporters stationed in their hometown, and uh, these uh, individuals on each team are recognized for being the most outstanding player, uh, the most outstanding defensive player, the top rookie, the best on special teams, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So in each community, reporters, as well as all the head coaches around the CFL, vote for their choices for each of these awards. Uh, Hamilton has obviously the, you know, the same amount of nominees at every other team. There's six awards that are handed out per team award. And the most outstanding player award for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, according to the ballots cast, uh, is quarterback Jeremiah Masoli. And in my piece today, while, you know, I mentioned that Masoli's had a fantastic season. You know, he's up in a lot of the statistical categories in the Canadian Football League in terms of completion percentage and yards thrown and touchdowns. Um, he wouldn't, and, and is not, and wouldn't be my choice for the team's most outstanding player award. And full disclosure, I did not have a vote this season. The FRC cut their <clears throat> voting numbers from 
seven down to five, and I was apparently one that uh, was off the list. So I didn't get to vote this year, but my vote would have went to Brandon Banks. And You know who else would have voted for Brandon Banks? Who's that? Brandon Banks. Yes, he would have. So Brandon <laughs> Banks put out a tweet today after this happened saying, I really should win MOP, in my opinion, consistency yeah. week to week when I was on the field. Bleepity bleep, I'm still open. I haven't been guarded all year. And another tweet he sent out also said, I know this may sound selfish, but um, look, I, Rick, I agree with you that I think Brandon Banks probably should have won. But I got to tell you, when I see a tweet like this, I think this is the one of the smaller, most petty, most more selfish, more ridiculous things that a player could send out, which basically cuts the legs out from under his teammate. I don't mind if a player does this if they lose at the, the the next level. So, you know, you're down to two finalists for most outstanding player. You have player A, player B. Player A wins, and player B says, hey, I should have won it. I don't have a problem with that because now you're going up against a player from another team. The issue I have with Brandon Banks, and I, I don't think his intention was to throw Jeremiah Masoli under the bus, although I do think he did that. I think he was more directed at the people who voted to say, hey, I mean, you totally disregarded the 14 games that I have participated in and have excelled at and nearly lead every statistical category in terms of receivers. You know, I should have, I should have been the guy that you voted for. Instead, it comes across as Brandon Banks, uh, the, the, there is an I in team, according to his spelling, <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Uh, tweet. So, you know, uh, I'm sure, you know, knowing Jeremiah Masoli, he's going to have no problem with Brandon Banks and probably vice versa. But it just, it reeks of uh, that me mentality. I was trying to think of a good example for this. And imagine at the Emmys or something where two people from the same show are nominated and one wins and the other one goes, I should have won that. I was the better actor. I mean, it would, it, I'm, I understand you say that it's not going to bother Jeremiah Masoli, but honestly, if you're his teammate, a, a teammate is going to maybe think of this. I don't, I don't begrudge Brandon Banks thinking he should win because I mm-hmm. think every athlete should want to be the best at what they do. Every person in their line of work, whatever it is, wants to be the best. But come on, if you're a good teammate, you shut up and you say, great job, Jeremiah. I'm with you, man. I'm hoping you win the whole thing. 100%. The, the, the tweet from Brandon Banks is, hey, I had a fantastic season, but Jeremiah is well-deserving of this award. Congratulations, uh, you know, number eight. Some of that effect. And whether he wholeheartedly believes it, obviously we, we, we know that he doesn't. Uh, but whether it's true or not, I think it's that, uh, you know, it's, it's that us mentality. It's, it's you, know, uh, you know, our teammate has been heralded for a great season. Let's all get behind them, especially the quarterback. I mean, the offensive leader of this team uh, should be supported. Um, and it's not coming across like that. And again, I don't think Banks' intention was to target Masoli but he has inadvertently done that. But And last thing on this one, I agree with you that I don't think he probably set out to target Masoli. I agree with that. But it also says something, if you write a tweet like this and you don't mean to be targeting the guy, it mm-hmm. says to me something else about the fact your lack of awareness of anybody that's involved in this except for you. It, it's, it just screams to me that I and team that you just described. Well, it also shows that, you know, he's, a, I think, just a little bit insecure because why bother sending out a tweet on your thoughts? And I know this is the, this is the precipice of, of Twitter, but why, why send it out when, you, you know, you're, you're not involved in the process? I mean, there's no, there's no good that can come from a tweet like that because he looks bad. The team, 
uh, you know, looks bad. And uh, I don't know. I, I think they'll be fine in the locker room. I don't think this is going to be a big deal because they usually aren't. But, uh, man, it just stinks. Let us jump ahead to uh, Saturday. Mm-hmm. There is a game on Saturday. You, I assume, I don't even know if you need to be doing the fifth quarter after this one, to be honest, but you will, and it'll be a great show because it's be always there. a great yeah. show, and there will be a few people who will call in. But this this game this game may actually mean less than the first preseason game of the season. I mean, it really, because no, nothing can be changed. All you're trying to do is not have anybody get hurt. Uh, is there? I mean, is there any real purpose to this game? It's pretty darn close to a preseason game because um, th- there's nothing at stake. Uh, you know, the Ticats can't move up in the standings. They can't fall back in the standings other than their record. But positionally, they're in second place. They know they're hosting the East semifinal. They know BC is going to be coming to town in a couple of weeks' time. Montreal, uh, you know, other than jockeying for the first overall draft pick, which, I mean, who cares at this point? Uh, really has nothing to play for, apart from you know a lot of these guys, even some guys in the Ticats who will probably see some action, uh, are going to be playing for jobs next year. And I say that because you know uh, coaches and GMs across the league and, and any league are going to be looking at game film. So if you can put that game film together, especially in a starting role, not just on special teams, you know that's of value to you individually. But from a team standpoint, this really does not mean anything other than the fact that. They have to stay healthy. When I say they, I mean the Hamilton Tiger Cats because they have a more important game to play the week after when they host BC in their first playoff game. So my recommendation, not that the Ticats are listening, but I would not start any starter in this game. It is all backups. It is, let's go back to week A of the Canadian Football League, which is preseason mode. And uh, guys who have no shot of ever starting a football game, you guys are now the starters. Are you allowed Uh, to do that in the CFL? Yeah, you are allowed to do that. You can start whoever you want. If, as long as they're on your 46-man roster and they're listed on your depth chart, you can you can go gangbusters. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, well, that's a, um, yeah, it's going to be good luck with the fifth quarter. I mean, you, <laughs> because well, I, it, it no. is going to be really interesting. I mean, I suppose there's some, some things there that you can see. They're going to have the backup quarterback and you're going to have some other things where uh, it could be interesting to see if he can play because right. uh, we really haven't seen that very much. Is there any purpose in putting Missoli or someone in there to shoot for any kinds of records or any kind of anything like that, or is the risk just way too high? The only the only scenario I can see Jeremiah Missoli starting. Well, there's two scenarios. Number one, Jerry Jones wants him to hit 300 yards again, which I mean, he has this uh, fetish with the 300 yard plateau for some reason. Maybe he's got a clause in his contract. I'm not sure, but. The only way I would start Jeremiah Masoli is uh, from a standpoint of a little bit of momentum going into that playoff game. Montreal doesn't care about Hamilton's momentum, so they're going to come after whoever is at quarterback and whoever is across the line from them. So I think the Ticats have to be extremely careful because, uh, you know, they're no stranger to injury. they got to be extremely careful, especially with Masoli, because there's a massive drop-off between him and Dane Evans, yeah. uh, you know, performance-wise and experience-wise. I'd, I'd put him in for maybe a couple series, just if you want to keep that, whatever, that momentum going. Because what happens to June Jones if Jeremiah Masoli is in the game and does get hurt? I mean, he just gets shredded, if that's the case. Obliterated. I mean... And rightly so. Exactly. And what is the excuse at that point? You know, we wanted to build momentum for the playoff game. I mean... You've had 17 it, weeks to do that. Exactly, yeah. And I, I know there's a lot of injuries at receiver and they want to build some chemistry, but that's what practice is for as well during the week. 
Jeremiah is practicing with all these, uh, you know, new receivers around him to gain that chemistry and to, and to get that timing down. And I know it's different during the game, but I'd rather have a healthy team as opposed to a team that doesn't have momentum or is a little bit rusty because they didn't play the week before. I would treat this week as a bye week. Starters, you have the day off. We're going uh, into this game against Montreal, and who cares if we win or lose? Yeah, it'd be great if we win. If we didn't, it doesn't matter. We have a more important game in a week's time. And you're over-under. Will this game then, on a Saturday night, on a chilly day, when there's nothing to play for, will this game have larger or smaller attendance than the Vanier Cup two years ago? Well, I, I, I would hope it's larger than the Vanier Cup a couple of years ago. And I will say there is one little tidbit of interest in terms of Ticats fans, and that is Johnny Manziel. And whether he starts or not, he's going to be back. He's going to be probably playing. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did start as well. I think there's a little bit of interest to see how he's doing and to see him in person again. I know we've seen him on TV for the last number of weeks. Uh, and, and maybe some fans want to jeer him or some want to cheer him. Uh, I think there's just a little bit of interest to see what he's going to do and how he plays in his final game, perhaps in the Canadian Football League. We'll see. Well, we know we know that an announced crowd of at least 23,000 will be announced. That is guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter what the number actually is. No. Uh, a couple minutes left. want to ask you about uh, Pete Diakowski. Pete Diakowski, uh, by the way, will be in studio here next Tuesday night for our annual November sampling fiesta. We always go to the heavy hitters when it comes to eating burgers. Uh, Pete will be here, but he retired today. Rick, one of the all-time, well, not all-time, yeah, one of the all-time, certainly in modern era, one of the all-time characters of this league. I would say uh, one of the all-time, all-time characters of the league. Yeah, I'd put him in with the Moscas and Adrian O'Bellies and, and all those guys. I mean, you, we talked about, you know, at the start of this interview, the salt of the earth of Don Edwards. Pete Dykowski is, you know, cut from the same cloth. A guy who will give you the shirt off his back, an ultra-nice guy. Once he gets on the field, he's a little bit different. And he was great to watch, always funny to be around when I was traveling with the Ticats, whether it was on a plane or in a restaurant or whatever the case is. He's just a joy to be around. And I think he has a tremendous future if he wants to expend some of that injury, uh, some of that energy in the Canadian Football League as a coach, uh, a, a broadcast career ahead of him. He is a fantastic individual. I know he stayed close to Hamilton, that's for sure. Um, tremendous career. 11 seasons in, in this league, 10 with the Ticats. I know we didn't play this past season. I would have loved to see him out there once again. But one of the best, I think, all-around guards in the CFL. He moved guys around. Of course, he's a mountain of a man. Um, but he did so gracefully at times too. There are, you're right. He, he's one of those unique guys that could literally almost slot into any job that you want to have. <laughs> what, no, I mean, I don't mean as a player anymore, obviously not, but right. if he wants to be a coach, I think he could be a terrific coach, uh, because of the way he can explain things and his intelligence. If he wanted to go into broadcasting, I think that's probably where he would be best suited. Cause I think he's fantastic at that. But I mean, you could find almost anything for this guy to do. You can work with the league as a, as in not an ambassador, well, he could be an ambassador, but there's spots for him in the league. I mean, he's really put himself in a position where he could almost do anything with this league if he wanted to. How about this potential job in a couple of years' time? There's going to be an opening on Jeopardy as host. And Pete, <laughs> being a former contestant, 
I, I would think would carry the Canadian banner that Alex Trebek has been carrying on that show. I think he would be tremendous on that show. Uh, he's for, a smart guy. He is a smart guy. Did not have a wondrous experience on <laughs> no. Jeopardy. Uh, he'll happily tell you the story. Uh, well, I don't know about happily, but he will tell you the story. Uh, a little bit of a rough night that night, but no, it's um, look. He's he's a, he's one of the good good guys, and uh, I'm happy that he's retired. I'm happy that he's able to walk away in one piece. I'm happy that his brain is uh, seems to be fully intact and not mm-hmm. in the same state that some people seem to leave the game in. And I'm happy that he's hungry enough to come in next Tuesday, as I say, and eat hamburgers for an hour. Um, so be listening for that. If you want to hear Pete Diakowski chew <laughs> and talk with his mouth open, you can just hear how intelligent he is even while consuming combustibles. So are you ordering like five times as many burgers this time around because he's in the studio? Uh, Pete has been here before for this. Pete actually begged me one time. He kept asking when he's coming back. Now, he had gone to Toronto and then to Saskatchewan. He was in Saskatchewan, so he couldn't do it last year. But yeah, he um, he is a man who knows his way around a hamburger. <laughs> He can he can he can not only work his way through a burger, but he can talk about the nuances. That's what makes him so good. He could make it. He could do an eating show. See, there's another thing Pete could do. He could do, he Definitely. could like Canadian version of man versus food. <laughs> He'd be the new Iron Chef, only the Iron Eater. The, the Iron Eater, Iron Gut Diakowski. <laughs> we see we could be his, his management just to yes. come up with ideas for him. Listen, Rick uh, Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. And you will be able to hear Rick on the fifth quarter at the end of the Cat game. Regardless of how important or unimportant, the show will be great because Rick will make it great because it always is. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. That game, by the way, tomorrow, uh, sorry, Saturday evening, Rick will be on sometime around 10 o'clock. Look, we can only sell it so hard. It's a game that means nothing. Rick will make it a good show. People will call in and make it a good show. It'll be probably more of a season recap, I would guess, than about that particular game because, uh, well, maybe it'll be the Johnny Manziel discussion hour. We'll see. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.